0: Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special Audio Highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest has contributed to what I believe is probably one of the most important of the 20th century art forms, which is the cartoon strip. The 19th century and earlier centuries had oils, but where else do we find tales of life, of politics, of pain, of consciousness, and just the experiences and pleasures and joy of being a human being. We please welcome a man who's made this his art form for the past 46 years and will continue to do so for a long time, we hope. Resident of Santa Rosa, Mr. Charles Schultz. Uh, how come Lucy hasn't changed her price of a psychiatric visit from, in all these years? It's still a nickel.
1: It's not always a nickel. Sometimes in the winter she'll up the price because you have to do things like the, clear the snow from the sidewalk and things like that. I've seen her go up as high as $0.35. Cents. I, I added up once um, the amount of times that Charlie Brown has gone to her booth, and I think he's gone there 106 times at five cents a throw, as you said, and I don't think he's getting any better. (laughs) I think he's probably
0: worse off now than when he started. Well, Lucy doesn't strike me as always one of the greatest listeners.
1: No, no, in fact, Lucy, actually, she hates listening. Uh, And of course, she despises having to live in a family with a stupid little kid that holds onto a blanket all the time. This just aggravates her no end. And now she has this younger brother named Rerun who isn't doing her much. You know, Rerun uh, spent this whole last week hiding under the bed because he didn't want to start kindergarten. And I could, I could understand that because I hated kindergarten too when I was small. And he said, uh, he's known a lot of people who went to kindergarten and later on in life never really amounted to anything. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: you've uh, amounted to something of, of uh, significance. I mean, creating characters that that most of the world recognizes and in part they've they've been out there in the most sort of astonishing ways. There's a a Snoopy Mall in Tokyo, I understand, amongst other things.
1: I've never seen it. Uh, I've never been to Japan and I don't think I ever (laughs) will go, but uh, they say it's very nice. The Japanese uh, really love what I do and I think we're, we're extremely big in Japan. They do wonderful things. And they do, uh, over there they do things so beautifully. All of the items that they produce are, are beautifully done. Uh, it's a shame that I'll never get to see them. <laughs> Why wouldn't you go? I understand you you,
0: you like to, uh, you choose not to travel as much as some people might. I'll go any place as long as I can be home by noon. <laughs> <laughs> well we'll do our best today here. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. The uh, the story of, of Uh, Peanuts is a, uh, in retrospect is a phenomenon. In fact, I think it was. It started out slowly in only a few newspapers. I understand there was some fear amongst others, not so much
1: yourself, that in fact it wouldn't last long as a strip when it first started. It's very difficult to predict whether a comic strip is ever going to work because generally they don't even end up, or they usually don't end up the way they start. And I think a good editor has to be able to predict and analyze and really know what the young person is like who has come into his office and is showing him a new feature because what he is getting will not probably be what it will end up, you know, Little Abner, uh, Popeye and all of those strips uh, were not at the end what they started off to be. So I think a good editor can anticipate whether or not this young person is a fanatic and I think if you're going to succeed, you have to be as my daughter Amy described me once. She came into my studio and looked at what I was drawing and asked me how far ahead I was and all that and she says, Dad, you're obsessed and I think that's what it takes. I think there has to be an obsession to this otherwise, I mean, you're sitting there drawing this thing day in and day out. It never ends. You're like a squirrel running in a cage and it just goes on and on and on and uh, there's no time off. There's no vacations. You just do it. Fortunately, I like to do it and fortunately, I am obsessed.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's, uh, it's made uh, our lives much better, too,
1: your obsession. I mean, I think in some ways it's a healthy obsession then, right? Oddly enough, this is something that I don't think I ever think about. I draw a comic strip for the same reason that this young lady plays the piano or people do watercolors. I do it for myself. I rarely think about the reaction that it will have upon the reader because in the first place I don't think that's possible. It would be uh, impossible to predict how people all around the world are going to react to something that you draw. You have just no way of knowing. So I draw for myself and hope that everyone or as many people as possible will like it. It's still a strange profession in that uh, you you receive wonderful compliments like you are giving me this morning, but then there are also people who think that comic strips are the lowest form of art there is, they're totally worthless, they never read them, and so you never quite know where you stand, and it's better just to, to keep your head down and don't stick up the, and, and look because uh, you'll get hit with something. <laughs> <laughs> let, let me ask
0: uh, just a quick little poll here. Uh, how many here will just as soon read the comic section as they would the editorial section of a newspaper? <clears throat> Well, I'm, I'm really struck, though, by that the, the, the cartoon strip is really a 20th century art form. It's, it's, it's concise, it's brief, it's, uh, we can know the characters, it, it, it keeps us uh, uh, hooked in and following the story, we get to know the people. Um, it really is a 20th century art form
1: designed for our pace of life, in a way. I think so. Uh, like everything else, of course, We are being damaged by television and what they do. It used to be, (laughs) it used to be when I was small that uh, the comic strips were one of the main forms of entertainment and people bought the newspaper uh, to get to follow Little Orphan Annie and Terry and the Pirates and Little Abner and that sort of thing, but now Uh, You don't even have the competition uh, among the newspapers, because they've broken down what you call territorial rights, and all the papers can have whatever comic strips they want, uh, generally. So that that, uh, competitiveness is gone. Uh, It it is very difficult, and of course the comic strips are shrinking. We don't have the room that we used to have. They virtually destroyed the wonderful adventure strips that there used to be, the things like washtubs and Captain Easy and um, Terry and the Pirates. They they just don't exist anymore because the cartoonist doesn't have the room to do the artwork and uh, Sunday pages are are a disaster now. Remember when Prince Valiant used to cover an entire page and he did wonderful adventures of beautiful illustrations and now you have six features on one page which is completely ridiculous. Why would an editor take something which is so loved and which helps sell the paper and slowly destroy it? it? It's beyond the comprehension of we cartoonists. <laughs> the, uh,
0: but television has also been a, a medium that's been very good for you. I mean, you've, you've done animated specials, uh, you've won Peabody Awards and Emmys for them, uh, you've written the stories. Was there a certain satisfaction in seeing the, uh, the characters begin to move and, and speak?
1: Well, definitely. I don't consider, surprisingly enough, having your characters animated, the most wonderful thing that's ever happened to you. I still think that the comic strip itself is just as as legitimate, if not a higher form of art than animation. The problem with animation is that you don't get to try it out in New Haven. Uh, (laughs) What you think of is given to the animator who is then really an actor, and he animates the scene that you hope you have written and the dialogue is given to some little kid who can never read the lines right and makes you want to slug him, you know? (laughs) Uh, And all of a sudden, there it is on the screen, and you don't even get to see it beforehand. I never get to see the shows until they're on television, and then it's too late. We don't get to try them out in New Haven, and, and, and it's extremely expensive, of course. But we've done some good things. We've done some things that we're proud of. I think the Charlie Brown Christmas, although it was a very poorly drawn show, uh, surprised us all by being around for tw- 26, 27 years. It still astounds me. Uh, and there are some good little voices. We've had some good things. I think one of the shows that we're most proud of was uh, What Have We Learned, Charlie Brown, where Linus saw in his mind the entire invasion on D-Day. And we had the voiceover of General Eisenhower telling what was happening. And this was something which had never been done before. Uh, so there are there are high, p- high points. <laughs>
0: Before your career uh, took off as a, as a cartoonist, you served in World War II, you, you ran what a,
1: a machine gun uh, outfit. Didn't you? <laughs> don't I look like a machine gunner? <laughs> uh, I, I, I met um, Jimmy Dean, the country western singer once, he says, you know, you don't look like a cartoonist. I said, I don't know. He says, you look more, cl- uh, you, you look like a druggist. <laughs> And I said, well, that's very disappointing. And I always thought I'd kind of like to look like a golf pro. He says, forget it, you look just like a druggist. So, <laughs> so I'm sure I don't, uh, I sure don't look like a machine gunner. <laughs> <laughs> there were, uh, there was a wonderful exhibit, I think concludes this weekend
0: in San Francisco at the Cartoon Art Museum of your work that goes back to October of 1950 when you started the Strip Peanuts. Uh, and there is a, uh, there's a comment in one of them about the, the postage stamps with the cartoon characters okay. on it. And I just wondered, if, if once your work shows up on a postage stamp, does that mean that sort of the spells doom for the comic strip? So many of those, like the Cats and Jammer kids and, and uh, Nancy and so forth, they must be getting smaller and smaller. They're now down instead of a full page on a comic page, they're now just postage stamp size.
1: What it, re- <laughs> what it really means is that you're dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because you can't uh, be on the postage stamp except for my good friend Dale Messick who lives out at Oakmont, Uh, Brenda Starr is on a postage stamp, but all the other creators uh, have died. And I don't think the artwork on some of those postage stamps is as good as it could have been, especially Popeye and the Cats and Jammer kids because the original creator was not there to draw them. And some syndicates have the terrible habit of trying to retain these comics and hire other people to do them. And I think the only one where it has really worked well would be uh, Snuffy Smith. I think that Fred Laswell has done a wonderful job drawing Snuffy Smith. Is there a character
0: that, that hasn't worked for you that you've, you've tried to draw
1: and, and had to drop? Oh, several. I, uh, I had a little girl who always claimed that she had naturally curly hair, and just to bother Snoopy, she used to carry a cat around, and I discovered that I couldn't draw cats. And uh, I've always said that anybody who lives in California near uh, Gus Ariola, who used to draw Gordo and could draw anything in the world, should never try to draw a cat because you could never draw it as well as Gus used to be able to draw them. So I threw away the cat. I'd like to draw a pig pen more, but I can't think of ideas for him. And he's rather restricted in what he can do. There are a lot of characters which just don't work. The ones who are there all of the time are the ones, just by the nature of the personality that I've given me, provide me ideas. It's like having a a repertory company and besides that I like them. I like Peppermint Patty and Marcy, the the little friendship that they have. Uh, I don't know why Marcy calls her sir all of the time (laughs) and (laughs) uh, Patty always just says, you're weird. (laughs) Um, uh, But but they're fun. I I like the kids and I've always said that uh, I think Charlie Brown would have been a nice neighbor to have had because he and I like the same things and he's a decent little kid. He's very nice. You've, uh, I don't think you've ever drawn the, uh, the little red-haired girl. <laughs> no. Uh, if you'll permit me to say, I met the little red-haired girl last year in Minneapolis. She married a fireman, and um <laughs> we were talking, and my daughter Jill, who used to be with the Ice Follies, a beautiful young lady, came over, and I said, Jill, I'd like to have you meet Donna here, who should have been your mother, but if she had been your mother, you wouldn't be as tall as you are now. And uh, <laughs> I don't know what that means, but anyway, <laughs> that's what happened. Well, why don't you see
0: Lucy at her booth and uh, give her a nickel? And <laughs> I could find out, yeah. Find out. I was uh, struck by uh, uh, some words in one of your essays uh, that, that says that uh, there are different kinds of loneliness, um, and it's uh, nowadays that Uh, in order to hold off loneliness, we end up
1: sometimes making terrible choices. Oh, there's no doubt about it. I think this is one of the problems that we all have, is this matter of uh, choices. And I think one of the most extreme and difficult types of loneliness is the kind of a dog chasing a car down the road when uh, the people are going away. Maybe they're only going away for a few hours, but the dog doesn't know it. And the dog is chasing the car frantically because in his mind they are gone forever and he will always be alone. And I think each of us has at different times experienced this kind of terrible, panicking loneliness. And of course, then we have to make choices in order to survive. And um, it's like the man says, events. It it is the events that bring us down.
0: (laughs) One of your uh, strips that's on on display, Talks about the uh, what it what it means to to be alive. What is worthwhile? Now, I think it's probably pretty clear that you're like a multi-squillionaire now. But <laughs> there's a um, it was it was in essence what is what is life worth? No matter what it is you've gained or how successful you are, if your dog doesn't love you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that's true. Uh, my dog just died a couple of years ago, and he loved me, but I often thought that he only loved me because I gave him cookies. <laughs> uh, but, but he did love me, and it's nice to have somebody that greets you and jumps around and all of that. Um, also, Snoopy has a, a different view on this. Somebody was remarking once that dogs seem to hang around with the wrong people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and... Uh, Snoopy says, well, actually, we're just very poor judges of character. <laughs>
0: uh-huh. Uh-huh. I was, uh, Harper's Magazine have, has that uh, index they run each month of different odd facts. One of them uh, that, that they ran in uh, the past month's issue was how many years it took before Charlie Brown's kite got stuck in the kite-eating tree, and he flew his kite for four years. What happened in that fourth
1: year? I don't remember that, but I do remember always having to live in a neighborhood where there were telephone wires and trees and things, and we could never get a kite going. It would always get caught someplace, or we didn't have enough wind to get them up. Uh, that was one of the series that probably got me as much attention back in the early years as anything. Charlie Brown had his kite caught in a tree, and he stood there underneath the tree, hanging onto the kite string while the kite was caught there. He stood there all week long. And uh, the kids would come by and say dumb things to him. And that was one of the first series of that kind that I had ever drawn. And it kind of opened up a whole new field of ideas for me. So um, I like the thought that I've invented things like the kite-eating tree. And uh, of course, the great pumpkin will be here pretty soon. Mm -hmm. Uh, Have you ever thought of anything? (laughs) Uh, And of course, Linus is an evangelist. He goes around from door to door trying to convince people about the great pumpkin. All they do is slam the door in his face. But there's some truth in that and I hope that all of you are able to see that truth of the, the <laughs> how horrible it is to believe in something that isn't true. <laughs> Uh, there is no great pumpkin. It's all an illusion. Linus, way back years ago, he got one, got one holiday ahead of himself, and he just got mixed up in it, and he had to justify it by coming up with the name the great pumpkin. So the great pumpkin doesn't even exist, but it doesn't bother Linus because it, all it does is uh, entrench in him uh, this strong belief that he has.
0: There's a, there's a classic children's book that I'm, of course, intimately familiar with at this, at this point in my life of, uh, called The Carrot Seed, where Uh, A young boy wants to plant a carrot seed and his father, his mother, and his older brother tell him it's never going to come up through several panels. But nevertheless he goes out and he waters it and he cultivates the soil and they keep coming back and telling him it's never going to come up. And at the end of the book up comes this beautiful enormous carrot and he always believed it. He knew that it would come. And it seems that that in, in part The Great Pumpkin also is about faith or, or belief moving ahead and,
1: and having that faith that keeps you going in life. I like Snoopy's <laughs> question of why in the world did uh, Anna Karenina ever fall for Count Vronsky? <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I, I haven't read your story, but... Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it was by
0: Tolstoy. <laughs> uh-huh. That's good. I'll have to read that. The, uh, uh, You have several children, grandchildren as well, Uh, and one of the sayings that that you've written that, that you liked of a previous generation was from your grandmother. When your children are young, they step on your toes. When they grow up, they step on your
1: heart. Grandmothers are very wise, and I think they are often undersold but my grandmother was a wonderful lady. She was poor all of her life and I think she was always 65 years old. She was one of these ladies in her generation where she had to depend upon the support of her children. She lived with us uh, for many years, but um, she was a good sporting lady. She, she always followed the career of Patty Berg. I don't know if many of you remember the golfer Patty Berg. Uh, Grandma had no idea what golf was about. She asked me once, is it good to have a high score or a low score? But <laughs> she didn't care. She just wanted to know what Patty, how Patty Berg was doing. And anyway, I used to love playing hockey when I was a kid. And I would take Grandma down in the basement. And we had uh, a space between a, a pole that held up the stairs and the stairs itself. So there was a space there about seven feet and I'd make grandma stand under that space with a broom and then I would shoot tennis balls at her. And uh, <laughs> uh, I always liked to think that she made some good saves.
0: <laughs> you never took out any of her teeth or anything, did you? <laughs> uh-huh. the, uh, uh, there was another strip, uh, and I think, uh, I think it may have been Marcy who was saying this, giving a report. Uh, yes, ma'am, this is my report on daytime and nighttime. Daytime is so you can see where you're going. Nighttime is so you can be in bed and worry.
1: Oh yeah, oh gosh. Uh, Charlie Brown lies in bed a lot worrying about things like that and he asks questions that go off into the darkness like, uh, why am I here? And he says, then a voice comes to me out of the dark that says, why, where do you wanna be? (laughs) And uh, (laughs) uh, I think we all have those terrible uh, dark nights of the soul, usually at three o'clock in the morning, where everything seems totally hopeless. Uh, I think Scott Fitzgerald worried about that a lot, didn't he? Mm-hmm. And I know Charlie Brown does, and I feel sorry for him, but uh, I, I, I lie there a lot of times at three o'clock in the morning, and then I think, well, as long as I'm awake, maybe I can think of a Sunday page, so then I <laughs> I think of something which I think is very funny at 3 in the morning, but when I wake up, it isn't funny at all.
0: <laughs> is there a point when you uh, you work, what, six weeks in advance of, of uh, when they're actually printed? Have you ever recalled a, a comic strip, just said, no, I want to replace it with something else?
1: No, I've never done that. Uh, oddly enough, I was just telling somebody out there in the other room that once I mail them in, I can't even remember what they are. Uh, as the time goes by then i recall them but uh, i can't tell you what i sent in last week is they're just gone from my memory but there is that syndicate deadline uh, the farthest ahead i think i've ever been ahead of the syndicate deadline is 2 months before i was going to have heart surgery so i knew i was going to lose some time there but i actually only lost a month so when i finally gained well enough to draw my hand stopped shaking i had a good month lead but it's awfully hard to do uh, And then you don't want to waste it. People say, boy, it seems to me you could just work real hard and get a couple of months ahead and then take some time off. Well, I I heard people say that for years, and it occurred to me one day, you don't work all of your life to get to do something, so you don't have to do it. See, that doesn't make any sense at all. (laughs) Uh, And uh, the time that you build up on your lead on the comic strips is like putting money uh, in the tomato cans because you don't get any interest. And if you're going to get two weeks ahead, you had better do something with that two weeks, which is worth all of the work that you had to get that two weeks. So that's why I don't like to go any place. I hate to waste all that good time. Do you you keep things in tomato cans around your house? Money, oh yeah, a lot of money. (laughs) (laughs) Uh Speaking of money, an odd thing just occurred last week. Back before I drew Peanuts, I drew some cartoons for our local paper in St. Paul. I got $10 for each group of cartoons that I drew. They printed them in paper uh, once a week. I just read in a magazine recently that somebody found one of those pages that I had drawn. They were called Little Folks, and it was auctioned off at South This page that I got $10 for was auctioned off for (laughs) $17,000. And I know there's something wrong there. There's a f- <laughs> there's a flaw in that system because, as far as I'm concerned, the pages are utter- utter- utterly worthless. Well, you know, uh,
0: Van Gogh had similar terrible luck. You know, <laughs> his paintings go for thirty-four, whatever million dollars it is now. But but you're uh, I mean, there's there's kind of a. A Snoopy empire around the world. I mean, the, the, what was it like in the in the mid '50s or something? People first began approaching you to to use your your characters uh, in association with other items.
1: I think the first licensed uh, material were those little dolls that were about seven or eight inches high. Hungerford Plastics put them out, and uh, Connie Boucher of Determined was the one that really established the quality of our licensed products, and we were the ones that published Happiness is a Warm Puppy, which was the bestseller in 1963. But I think it was the cover of Time Magazine that really opened everything up for us, and it opened things up for Lee Mendelson and our television shows and all of the things that followed. But oddly enough, I don't pay much attention to that. Uh, I try to watch over every product to make sure that uh, things are done well. But to me, that my job is still to draw the comic strip and help the editor sell his newspaper so that I can come and be on programs like this. <laughs> There's a, uh,
0: I think, what is it, a, a Snoopy peanut butter in Australia, mm-hmm. have you ever tasted it?
1: I don't like peanut butter. No? <laughs> <laughs>
0: The bases are loaded and nobody out, so what are you going to do? And uh, the answer that Charlie Brown, I believe it was Charlie Brown who said, we live in difficult times.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh Uh (laughs) uh, uh,
0: Not only is there a gift for epigram in in what it is that that you write, but there are words that are uh, now in dictionaries and and so forth. For instance, the phrase security blanket
1: was your creation. I didn't create the phrase I created the fact that Linus had the blanket I don't know who finally labeled it as a security blanket but it's in the dictionary now which is very flattering of course but I thought it's something I've got to tell you uh, you go along day after day after day and some sometimes you just wonder if you're ever going to think of uh, another thing Uh, two weeks ago I finished up a batch of strips one morning and then I went over to the ice arena and I had lunch And as I walked back, I thought, well, now I have to start all over again. I I don't have the slightest idea what I'm going to draw. And all of a sudden, I sat there and I thought of what I think is one of the best things I've drawn in years. Linus and Snoopy are sitting on the floor. They're kind of lounging against each other. There's some pillows behind them, and he's got his blanket. And Snoopy is curled up on part of the blanket. And Linus says, I don't recall ever giving you permission to share this blanket. (laughs) And he says, however, I must admit that you are warm and fuzzy. And Snoopy says, everyone brings something to the party. (laughs) Uh Now, (laughs) the point of my story here is that I don't have any idea how I can think of those things Uh, I can tell you how I get to a certain point, but beyond that, I have no idea. I always equate it to being at a party where you're just standing around with some people or sitting at the dinner table, and uh, people just say funny things, and they can't explain to you why they say those funny things, but the cartoonist has to create the party, the people who are invited to the party, and think of the things that uh, they say, so that's the difficult part. Were you up till uh, three in the morning this morning? Waking? Uh, did you wake up in the middle of the night last night? Sure, I do every night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> After all, I'm getting old. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you mentioned your, the ice rink, and this is uh, the Redwood Empire Ice Rink in uh, in Santa Rosa, and it's the most magnificent ice rink I've ever seen. And I th- and I understand that it's been around for about 20 years, and that it is the equivalent of that baseball uh, stadium. You build an ice rink, and they will come. You've had world-class uh, ice skaters are in the middle of July in Northern California with temperatures outside probably nearing 100. You have the uh, the worldwide Senior Ice Hockey Championship going on inside.
1: Yes, we're very proud of this building and I think we're proud of what it has done for the community. We have some most remarkable people running it. Uh, Craig Gates is our general manager who keeps everything going and uh, keeps the Zambonia from breaking down. And uh, last year we hired Richard Dwyer, Mr. Debonair from the Ice Follies, to be our overall manager. Uh, Dorothy Hamill just left a couple of days ago. She's been practicing there for a whole year. I mean, no, no, for a whole month uh, to go on the pro tour. So we're always doing things that uh, no one else has ever done in an ice arena. We established a school skating program. So literally thousands of children have learned how to skate who probably wouldn't even have seen ice before. And uh, we're just starting now to think about our annual Christmas show, which is the best Christmas show in the world. You know, follies and... Karen Kresge is our choreographer, she was the star of the Ice Follies for 10 years, and she and I both get terribly annoyed when people say, oh, that was a good show, it was real professional. We say, (laughs) "Uh, of course it was professional, we had the best professionals, Uh, we've had Scotty Hamilton and Robin Cousins and Karen uh, and Dorothy Hamill, all of those people there, and now we're going to do it again this Christmas. It's it's quite a challenge to try to do it better every year. But I would say that when we are in rehearsing, that's when I'm the most happy. I enjoy just standing by the rail, watching Kieran uh, rehearse all of the different numbers and seeing all of these wonderful skaters perform. And of course, my daughter is in it too, which makes me happy because she and I have a lot of fun. Do you still play ice hockey? Yeah, we had the senior hockey tournament this year. Uh, To be on my team, you have to be over 70. Uh, there are, we have four teams, a team from Japan, a team from uh, Los Angeles, and always a team from Ottawa. And it usually comes down on the last day between Ottawa and ourselves. And this year we tied two to two, and we shared the gold trophy, and we're very glad to,
0: to be able to do it. <laughs> was it. Was it waking up one morning in Santa Rosa saying, I miss the ice, I miss the cold in some way of, of Minnesota where you grew up?
1: No, not at all. uh <laughs> uh-huh. Uh, although my wife and I did used to say, that's the one thing we do miss from Minnesota was ice skating, but there had been an arena across town uh, run by the Baxter brothers, Skippy Baxter, uh, was one of the first man ever to do a triple axel, and he was in Believe It or Not for it. He and his brother were running an arena, but it had to close down, and my wife came home one day and she said, the ice arena is closed, and I said I wish there was something we could do about it, and two years later I was stuck with this uh, arena. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: You know, there is such unalloyed joy in Snoopy's face when he's sliding across a frozen uh, piece of ice or uh, even Woodstock sliding, oh, running a Zamboni across a frozen birdbath.
1: That used to be my ambition when I lived in Minnesota and I'd go to the St. Paul hockey games and be one of the first ones in the arena to see that beautiful expanse of untouched ice, and I could see the players come out from the dressing room, and the goalie would always toss the puck out onto the ice, and you could hear the slap of the puck echo throughout the whole auditorium, and then they would skate out, and it was just a marvelous thing. Now, I can do that in my own building. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't, unfortunately, I never do it, you know? and I've never learned how to drive the Zamboni. Isn't that ridiculous? <laughs>
0: well, in a way, could... Maybe I'm making a connection here that you don't see, but I, could you see a connection between a blank piece of paper and the blank ice just after the Zamboni's gone over it? and That you have a chance to draw those first black lines on the on the white paper?
1: I think you're very perceptive. and You may be surprised to know that Peggy Fleming was actually thinking of uh, doing some tracings on the ice and then having them printed and lithographed. Uh, I don't think she ever got around to doing it, but um, there's a a real artistry there, just the patterns on the ice. Now did you know that they no longer have, um, they no longer do figures, there are no longer any compulsory figures. They have what they call moves in the field where the uh, child has to skate around doing the various required moves at top speed. It's extremely difficult, but no more figures. Are there, uh, speaking of uh,
0: doing figures on the ice or figures on the page, do you still tinker with the uh, the caricatures, uh, the, uh, the drawings of your characters, do you still sort of modify Snoopy or Charlie Brown or Linus a little bit?
1: I think that every day when you draw the characters you draw them a little bit different because you're trying to do the best that you can And you're not aware, until maybe a reprint book comes out, that Charlie Brown is a little taller than you thought he used to be. Snoopy's nose is longer, thinner, or fatter, or whatever it happens to be. And you're not aware of these changes, but this happens to every cartoonist who has ever existed. Uh, If you look back at at the early Little Abners or any other, Blondie, any of those things, the characters really look different, completely different from the way they do now. So uh, I'm not aware of these changes, but I'm trying each day to draw them as best that I can.
0: And 50 years from now, uh, will anyone else be drawing these characters?
1: No, I have a a contract that stipulates, and at the idea uh, of my children, they said we don't ever want anyone else drawing Dad's strip. So if I ever retire, and if I ever die, (laughs) <laughs> um then that's the end of the strip which is the way it should be because I uh, I think it's deplorable what has happened to so many of the really good strips who who have become kind of part of this minor art form and they've just been ruined because of the the greed of uh, of a newspaper syndicate
0: Would you allow reruns so that we would have another 46 years or 50 years or 60 years however much longer
1: I don't know I'll be dead <laughs> Okay <laughs>
0: Well, thank you very much for being a guest here on West Coast Live with us and uh, talking about your work and, uh, and your art. And, and I, I think on behalf of all of us, thank you. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.